0: Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I'm your co-host, E.K. Wimmer.
1: Hey, E.K. Wimmer. I'm Mariah Rose. <laughs>
0: uh, you had me. I thought, thought you were going to go with the old Eck again, but you didn't. Nope,
1: I didn't. I didn't even come up with a witty name.
0: Oh, thanks. I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> no
0: problem. Elf King. Uh, okay. You know what? I'll take it. It's cool. <laughs> Well, welcome back, everybody. This is a podcast about the 80s. If this is your first time listening, you found us. Congratulations. Hi. This is where all the cool kids hang out. If you're returning, party's still in effect, and we are still talking about the 80s. Yep. This week, we are going to be talking about a very fun one. Mm-hmm. We're both very excited to get to it, but before we launch in, uh, the thrift stores actually just opened up like a day mm-hmm. ago, so... Were you able to squeeze in a thrift store find?
1: I squeezed one out.
0: (laughs) No. all right. Well, tell in detail.
1: I went there and this was the first time I've been to a store or anywhere in three weeks again. So, of course, I was giddy with the thrill of being away from my house and my life. And I just walked up and down the aisles just... Looking at all of the stuff, I didn't need much, but I did find a cute little, oh, like f- French style. You know, when you think of a French person, obviously you know all of the French people in the world wear berets. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. Don't are you? And also they wear striped shirts, not vertically, uh, horizontal blue. Yeah. There's a name for it. It's escaping me now. I found one. So
0: I think it's a French term. <sighs> <laughs> Mon les, Dieu. Les stripes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, now I have almost completed my French costume, so when I go to France with my beret and my striped shirt, they won't call me out as an American. Actually, hold on. Okay. We have to tell the story of what happened when we, we were in France last time. We were in Montmartre, and you were up at the top, and there was a, like a... An artist. Mm-hmm. Rumor has it that there's a rule that they can't like all crowd you, so they have like turf, and we were on one guy's turf, and uh, he was shouting at you, "Hey, fashionable man!" and trying <laughs> trying to get to draw you. <laughs> it was
0: awesome. He was just trying to scam me, is all he was trying to do.
1: Yeah, but we also had a friend who was with us, and he kept and she was actually quite beautiful, but he kept saying, "You're not that ugly." <laughs>
0: Leave it to the French.
1: Okay. Anywho, what did you find?
0: I found a poster of Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> no, just kidding. I didn't. Oh my
1: gosh! I thought it was true, and I was so excited.
0: No, I didn't. Oh no! A little French humor for you. <laughs> I went to a bunch of thrift stores, well, like three or four of them, and found one single tape. That's it. But. It was a tape that I am a huge fan of and we haven't owned before on VHS. The Christopher Guest classic Waiting for Guffman.
1: Oh, so good. Which
0: I'm finding out uh, many people I talk to have never seen it. So if you have not seen that movie, both of us highly recommend it. It is a mockumentary from the guitarist of Spinal Tap, Christopher Guest. And if you like Spinal Tap, that is the same style, but instead of a heavy metal band on tour... It's about a very small town, local theater production, Mm -hmm. taking it way too serious because they think it's going to be their big break. It's got this all-star cast, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Fred Willard. I mean, they're all in it.
1: And Christopher Guest, you'll know from, um, he's the six-fingered man in The Princess Bride. That's right. Also, Spouse of Jamie Lee Curtis. So
0: that's right.
1: we're getting you there. You got to go watch it.
0: Yeah, if you've seen Best in Show about uh, the dog show mm-hmm. or Mighty Wind about the folk band reunion.
1: This is better than both
0: of these. Yeah, but this was his first one, Waiting for Guffman. So I found that on tape and I'm really excited.
1: Oh, that's so, so good.
0: That yeah, was actually a good find.
1: I'm sad to know that most people don't know that movie because I often quote it. I'm like, <laughs> boring, boring.
0: I also say, I'm going to bite my pillow. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> We get it when we do <laughs> yeah, it with each other. Yeah, we get other. it. We know what's up. <laughs> well, that's our thrift store finds. Not mm-hmm. too bad. No. Getting tested in the waters again. Just
1: being out, even if you're masked and like shunning all people, it feels so good.
0: Yeah, you're not shunting all people, though.
1: Oh, you tied it in! <laughs> Did
0: it! Paul Blart wins again with the segue. Oh. All right, this week we are talking about the 1989 body horror, very dark comedy... Society, Mm -hmm. boy, this is a first-time watch for you, correct?
1: Yes, and you actually stared at me watching this because I was so so excited, (laughs) excited.
0: so excited.
1: (laughs) I do love. We were talking about that earlier this week. I love body horror.
0: Yeah, it's great. And I was thinking about this too. You know, when we think about body horror, or one thinks about it, often, of course, people go to Cronenberg. So we talk about The Fly or Mm -hmm. something like that. Also, The Thing. You know, these classic body horrors. And then there's The kind of sub body melt, which would be street trash or the movie body melt, like those kinds of films. I don't know why, but it occurred to me today that people kind of don't clump or don't mention society as much as I think they should when they talk about body horror, Mm -hmm. which is really a kind of a pinnacle of body horror as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think anything like this had been done before. And it really, when it came out, we'll talk about it at the end, was quite shocking. So, yeah, it is weird to me because Everybody I talk to in the horror community definitely knows society. They like society. But yet a lot of those people, when they talk about body horror, we kind of just all collectively forget to mention this. But it's probably one of the best body horror films out there.
1: It's a great social commentary. I think possibly the reason it's lost is there are some like plot holes and stuff. So it's not a perfect film that you want.
0: Yeah. And it's. It's interesting because we'll talk about that too, how this was a debut film. So it does suffer from a little, a couple missteps, but overall.
1: Just some growing pains. Yeah,
0: quite, quite an accomplishment. And you're right. There's a lot of commentary there about society in general, and uh, it gets clumped in with other films of the time, the kind of post or that kind of Reagan era of uh, they live, you know, consumerism, Mm -hmm. stuff like that, this other classes, things Mm -hmm. like that, that are existing um, the director who we're going to get to in a second, Brian Usna, also likened it to other films of the time. Actually, I think the same exact year, if I'm remembering correctly. Parents, which was oh, another right. really dark comedy, but also about this kind of under seedy underbelly mm-hmm. that people don't often see, which... We covered in a earlier episode, so if you want to hear us talk about that film, which we're both fans of, and I don't think a whole lot of people are, oh. but Parents is a pretty awesome movie.
1: Yeah, I, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that, even though it's painful for me to listen yeah, to our old know. episodes. I'm not
0: a fan of going back and listening. <laughs> I just assume they're all fantastic. Yep,
1: probably, probably. Five stars,
0: people. We're on iTunes.
1: I will say, though, that this felt very timely considering the current world we're living in with a huge gaps between the wealthy and the poor being very clearly highlighted, especially during, you know, COVID times. Mm -hmm. It kind of, I don't know, struck a a chord all over again.
0: You know, it's funny you say that because normally we we save this to the end, but I think it's more appropriate now is there has been talk of a sequel to this. And I think if ever like strike while the iron's hot, it is Mm -hmm. right now would be the ideal time that it would resonate with people. Although, you know, a lot of these sequel talks or follow-ups often just kind of fall by the side. Mm-hmm. But if it's possible, I I think it would be the perfect time to do it. Yeah. It's this kind of Trump era... Society. So we'll see. We'll get back to you on that one if we hear any development on it.
1: For sure. Oh, Trump is definitely part of the society. Anyway.
0: (laughs) He's shunting all night long. Don't say it. All right. So like I mentioned, this was directed by Brian Usna. He's a a pretty iconic uh, staple in the horror community. He's responsible for a lot of awesome films, which we'll discuss at the end as well. But I thought it'd be kind of fun to just briefly, because we haven't done one of his films yet is to just talk about his history a little bit mm-hmm. and how he got involved making his first uh, legit feature film. Okay. So it's interesting because he admitted himself, he knew nothing about filmmaking like at all, but he had an interest in it. He always did. He got a camera and he started to film some stuff and really his first kind of dive into filmmaking was in the late 70s. So he... Had He's always had a very artistic leaning. He loves a lot of surrealism and a lot of stuff like Lovecraft and things like that. So he was already into that style of, of art and filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And he decided he was going to make a film. Like you And do. He, he shot a short film. He said it it was horrible, but he just kept adding to it. And eventually it became a larger film. So technically speaking, his first real film came out in 1978, and you're going to love this. It was called Self-Portrait in Brains. Oh, okay. And the concept is even cooler. It was about an artist who blows his brains out onto a canvas to make art and oh then gosh. comes back as a hologram. I want to see it so bad.
1: Brian Yusin, if you're out there, please send it to us. I want to see it so bad. Well,
0: he may be out there listening because Mm -hmm. he is on social media. And I immediately thought, we have to see this film because we're both working artists. And I this is right up our alley. I could not find it anywhere. So I don't know if it's ever actually been (sighs) released.
1: I would love to see it.
0: Yeah. But I reached out to him and I wrote him and I said, hey, we're going to be talking about your movie we both really want to see your first film now. Whether or not he's willing to share that, because maybe he doesn't think people should see it. <laughs> maybe he's like, "Who sure are you, jerks?" <laughs> yeah, get out of my business. <laughs> but we'll see. I mean, he's um, he's actually reshared one of my posts before on Instagram. So he's out there. He's active. He interacts with fans. If he gets back to us, <sighs> oh, I would be so excited because I really want to see what his first kind of.
1: What if he gets back to you and he says no?
0: Well, then at least I know it doesn't exist out there for people to see. Mm -hmm. But I really want to see it. Anyway, that being said, he he got the bug. He really did love the idea of making movies. He Mm -hmm. wanted to make more. And he decided, well, maybe because this didn't go over so well, I should look at producing some films. Although he always, in the back of his mind, wanted to direct. And he decided then, this is early 80s we're talking about now. To take out an ad in Variety magazine, a wanted ad for a horror director. And he put it out there to just see what would happen because he had some money set aside. And he was like, let's make a low budget horror movie. Let's get this going. Yeah. And who he ended up hooking up with through this ad was none other than a very uh, up and coming director, Stuart Gordon, who was in Chicago. And they met up together. And Stuart Gordon showed him a script he was working on. It was supposed to be, I think, a TV script originally sure. called Reanimator. And he said, I'll produce that. And so the two of them kind of worked on it together, made some rewrites. And he fully produced Stuart, Stuart Gordon's iconic uh, film Reanimator. And that's how he got his foot in the door. Wow. So right out of the gates. Um, they're already making really bizarre, interesting horror that doesn't mm-hmm. have to follow any rules because he self-financed that entirely. He had nobody like looking over his shoulder. So that's wow. why they could pull off the stuff they did in that film. And they had a blast. It's also based, you know, on Lovecraft as well. And so it kind of set the tone early on.
1: That's really interesting because I think that's pretty successful like as a film. And a lot of times when you see self-financed films, as we well know, they're so great.
0: Yeah, this, well, this was, you know, a couple people that just really did have a good vision. And this Mm -hmm. was both of their first times. And they just kind of worked together really well, they hit it off really well. And they remained really close because uh, he went on to work on a lot of uh, Stuart Gordon's later films producing them. Cool. So that was it. He had he had uh, produced reanimator. And why this is important and why I bring all this up is because being the sole producer of it, he owned the rights to Reanimator, whoa, which meant that he could do any sequels. Mm-hmm. And he thought, well, if I'm going to direct, why don't I just direct the sequel to Reanimator since I own the rights to it? And uh, that was probably a pretty smart move.
1: Was there a big demand for a sequel?
0: I don't know. I, I actually didn't look into that, but I would assume so because it became a you know kind of a cult.
1: Sure, we haven't covered classic. it. So it yeah, be, we've yeah. never
0: covered it. So. We should at some point. Mm-hmm. But what he ended up doing between his first film and and producing Reanimator was went on to produce a couple other things. So he did From Beyond with Stuart Gordon, mm-hmm. Dolls. All of these were put out by Empire Films, too, which we just talked about in one of our previous or our last episode on oh, Acropolis. Okay. And he even in 1987 was working on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So he's had his hand in a lot of really cool franchises. But by the time he was ready to make a film, he thought, well, I'll direct the follow-up, which was going to be Bright of Reanimator. However, he got this really smart idea because he was approached with a script for Society. Society was written by two guys, Rick Fry and Woody Keith, and they had this really interesting script. The reason why he was willing to take it on is because at the time Brian Usna was working with this is like just as far as Hollywood history goes how cool this is he just happened to be working on a project with Dan O'Bannon at the time which didn't come out and so could you imagine those two I mean wow how cool that would have been but there were a lot of similar themes that would show up in society so he was like ready to make this Mm -hmm. kind of film Mm -hmm. when this script landed on his lap and he said okay yeah this is the film I want to make however knowing how filmmaking works he said, oftentimes, up and coming directors only get one shot. You make one film, and that's all you ever make. The chance to make a second film is pretty rare. Yeah. And he realized because he had Bride of Reanimator in the bag, why not make society his first film, guaranteeing that he would have a second yeah. film to do? And the stage was set. I thought that was really smart.
1: So smart because if the Bride of Reanimator flopped. He never would have had a chance to do He's, his.
0: That's exactly his point. Brilliant. Is he would have already had a ah, film out, so it doesn't so matter. It's so
1: forward thinking. I can't imagine, especially as somebody who's just, you know, getting their feet wet to have that foresight and and understand the business enough to, to make that call, especially at that place in, or point in time where uh, maybe that information wasn't as easily accessible as it is now.
0: Yeah. But who would have known that Society would go on to uh, really be, I'd say, his claim to fame. I can't think of another yeah, film. So good. Although he's got all, a lot of awesome films. Society is the film I think of when I think of him. So anyway, they got $1 million to start. I th- It got inflated. We'll talk about that later, too. And then in 1989, it went into production. And one little minor detail I read before we launch into it, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't look into it to kind of back it up is that it was actually shot on the film lot of a production company that was run by a Christian film production and I thought <laughs> of all the films they could have made uh whoops mm. that's pretty awesome but that's how that's how we get rolling we'll add all kinds of cool details as we go on but that is how we get to society
1: oh it's such a great film and it actually it begins in a great way because it immediately puts you off kilter because you don't know what's happening and you're kind of in it from the moment the film starts we have this man who's extremely familiar do you immediately just go i know him from something
0: he he looks like that guy
1: yeah so bill whitney is played by billy warlock
0: (laughs) just in case he forgets his character name
1: i know (laughs) drop the y And you've got it.
0: I love when we watch like super low budget, like shot on video stuff. And when you look up the credits, all of the actors' names are the characters' names. That's great. That's always my favorite.
1: That's so great. So if you feel like when you watch this movie, you've seen uh billy warlock before you have because if you have ever put your eyeballs on a soap opera at any point in your life you probably have seen him Oh, okay also he's on baywatch so there you go he
0: he looks like a baywatch guy for sure yeah
1: And he has the twin mullet to John Stamos.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's the mullet that I also call the young George Clooney mullet.
1: Absolutely. He's
0: he's a good actor. I like him. This is a really well cast film.
1: He's great. Although he is supposed to play a a high schooler and he's very clearly a man, but whatever. That's
0: just the 80s. That's just how it goes. I mean,
1: yeah. And at this point, do we, like, seriously, does anybody want a high schooler to act like a high schooler?
0: Well, and also it would be awkward because a lot of 80s movies have nudity and sex and stuff like that and we all expect it. We want it in our 80s movies, but if we knew they were all like super underage, it would be awkward. So we know that they're all like 25, 30 years and then old and we're
1: okay with it. Yeah. pretending
0: to be teenagers because it's part of the campiness of it. So I guess age has never really bothered me. It reminds me of Uh, Lone Wolf, which is like the pinnacle of old people acting like young people, (laughs) where they seriously look like they're in their 40s and they're playing teenagers. It's really funny.
1: So uh, Billy Warlock is actually the son of an actor stuntman named Dick Warlock. So I'm going to pause on the name Dick Warlock. Just let that sink in that that's that man's name. But... He plays The Shape, uh, Michael Myers, in Halloween 2.
0: Absolutely. So
1: we have a family royalty situation here.
0: Yeah, it's. I was going to ask if that was Dick's son or not, because I assumed uh, that name in Hollywood in the horror community is, is very well known, so... Mm-hmm. I was curious. That's interesting. I didn't know that was his son.
1: Yeah. And so his name is probably, I mean, Billy is short for William. William Warlock. What a cool Willie name. Warlock.
0: That's what I'd go by.
1: Can we change our last name to Warlock? We could. Let's do it.
0: We'd have to ask Mr. Julian Sons. <laughs> <laughs> Which, fun fact. Not fun fact, but kind of fun fact. Okay. Guess who helped produce Warlock? Who? Brian Usner. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, it's a small and incestual world. Hey, go <gasps> yeah, listen. Yeah, it's like society. Oh, gross. Go listen to our Warlock episode.
0: <laughs> our listeners must be so annoyed by now because we're like self referencing other episodes every episode now. Gotta do it. Gotta do it. We're in hey, deep. join our Patreon while you're at.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to the story. We have uh, Bill Whitney. And he's in a mansion. He's running with a knife. It's very confusing. We don't know what's happening. And then we enter into what is actually like a therapy session. Mm -hmm. And it's been like a dream therapy session. It's very unclear. But the therapist is like, don't you trust me? And he's like, not really. I'm scared of you. I'm scared of my family. And that kind of sets the tone. Because there's this like weird feeling of... I don't know, suspicion that is building from the first moment. And actually, these therapy sessions I read were filmed after the fact. They weren't intended, but they give sort of a form and substance to this uh, film because I think that Yuzna started with the like crazy scenes and built. Backwards from them.
0: It's interesting, too, thinking about the original script that we haven't discussed yet because Rick Fry and Woody Keith had handed over to Brian Usna this script, Society, which was not a body horror film at all. It was about a blood sacrifice. That's what this was all about. Mm. But the paranoia and the secret society and all that was very present because Woody Keith had grown up in Beverly Hills as part of this world. And was a very paranoid person in real life and so all these elements were there in the original script it's just that Brian then took it and amped it up to the extreme and boy it from here on out will get even more extreme but I think it's worth noting that This really does start from the foundation of the original script of paranoia, not really trusting everybody. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of veneer of being really put together, but there's something darker under the surface. That was all present in the original script.
1: Okay. So after his therapy session, we go to Bill, the brother. He's playing... Uh, like basketball or something with his friend Milo. And there's a blue Econoline in front of the house. Oh, I know. We had a blue Econoline. It was amazing. It's sad that we had to let it go. <sighs> R. It R. cost $1 million to fill up the tanks on that thing. So, <laughs> Anywho, uh, Bill and his friend Milo are playing. The Econoline belongs to uh, an ex-boyfriend's named blanchard david blanchard of bill's sister hang on we're not going to introduce too many characters so don't (laughs) worry so the sister is named jenny and she calls to her brother bill and is like blanchard's around can you help so she's upstairs getting ready for her coming out party and her brother comes up to help her just in the nick of time too because her weird ex-boyfriend has been hanging out in her closet possibly messing with her earrings (laughs) (laughs) As she's getting ready. And Bill just pushes Blanchard out and is like, what are you even doing? Why are you such a creep? Why are you hanging out in my sister's closet? Go away. Yep. And it seems sort of like Bill, or what's his name? David Blanchard is the bad guy. Like right from the start, you go, what's wrong with this guy? We're going to build from here. But that's not the case. Just put that in your back pocket.
0: But it also kind of sets the stage early on for this sub kind of plot of paranoia and people watching you and people Mm -hmm. you know always looking and stuff because right away we see oh there is somebody hiding in the closet Mm -hmm. watching you so maybe his paranoia is founded in some reality right i I like it i i think the the way this film sprinkles in elements early on Mm -hmm. and then just slowly intensifies them is really smart. For a first-time filmmaker, well done.
1: Yeah, and immediately after that, though, when your attention is focused on Blanchard as the, like, weird bad guy, Bill goes to zip up the back of his sister's dress and sees, like, a strange pulsating lump.
0: Yes, it's really just, cool.
1: Just for a moment, and you think to yourself, is Bill crazy or is his sister growing a thing on her back? What's happening here?
0: Yeah, you. I, I'd say early on... And I can't speak to it because I've already seen this film a couple times. But for you, being that this was your first time watch, I'd be curious to know if you thought, oh, we're getting a a look into his dementia, you know, his psychosis or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, this is really happening. I don't know. I mean, what what did you think right away? Well, the
1: title gives it away a little bit because she keeps his sister Jenny keeps talking about how she's getting ready for a, a coming out party. So you know that she's coming out to society, and the film is called Society. So it kind of led my mind to that immediately. Okay. So I didn't really believe that Bill was going to be falling into madness, nor did I think that Bill or that David Blanchard was the bad guy. Okay, but I I, under, I appreciated the effort to kind of scatter shots. So you go, what am I supposed to focus on here? And then. Bill also at this point kind of admits that he thinks he was adopted because he doesn't relate to his family. So we get this whole sense that he is separate from his parents and sister. And you see that in the relationship as it... I, just, I don't know that it really develops. But we also need to talk about the shower scene.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so Bill's getting ready to go to a, on a beach date with his girlfriend. And he goes up to borrow Sun, tan sun lotion? lotion? yeah. Oh, that's, that's so funny. 80s. <laughs> totally from his 80s. sister. And he goes in and he, like his sister doesn't answer the door. So he kind of lets himself into her room. But when he goes in, she's showering. And through the kind of frosted glass, we see her. But it's like uh, she's distorted. Her breasts are on her back, but also... You see her breast and her butt in one shot.
0: It's like if you took a Barbie doll and just twisted the top half around and put it in the shower because it would be the bottom half facing one direction, the top half, half facing the other. And it's really pretty cool. Looking.
1: Yeah, and there's this moment where he's like, what, what? And then everything's fine and normal. And it kind of shows you, like, is Bill going crazy? What's happening?
0: And this is where we start to first get the introduction of these surrealist elements of, yeah, you know, the the visual language of this film being very much based in surrealism. Because, as I had mentioned early, earlier, Brian Yusno was a big fan of surrealism in particular Salvador Dali so of course a lot of this was going to be adapted and this is where we start to see a separation of the original script from the redone script by Brian because he started to remove these elements of a blood sacrifice mm-hmm. and start to insert these elements of more of this body horror and this surrealism which is really smart because he knew if this was his one shot to make a movie, he wanted to do something that was really bold and nobody would forget.
1: Very different. A blood sacrifice yeah. would be boring.
0: I Well, it, I don't know if I would say it would be boring because I actually would love to see this film in a more traditional way with a, you know, kind of blood orgy at the end. But I, I agree this would have just been another random film from the 80s and yeah. it would have had nothing that stood out about it.
1: Pretty forgettable. Very for smart sure. choice. And actually this scene was added in. To have a little bit of like a scare or some dramatic event. he It wasn't in the original script, but he used a thought that that should happen. Very smart. Earlier. Absolutely, because it's just a little teaser, but it keeps you going, wait, what's happening here? So it leads you on.
0: It also starts to lay down another groundwork of these subtle incestual elements that are sprinkled throughout the film, too. Yeah. Where, I don't know, I never once... I had two older sisters. I never would have thought to walk in the bathroom oh while one of them was showering Gross. at all. Gross, no. And it's not an elves moment, if you remember that <laughs> film.
1: <laughs> Go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> oh, Mariah! <laughs>
0: hey, join our Patreon. <laughs> but uh, it, is, it is still really uncomfortable and weird, and it gets amped up as well throughout mm-hmm. the film. Mm-hmm.
1: And so let's skip ahead so we aren't walking our way through although i will say that we established that they're all high schoolers and the high school is actually the high school where billy warlock went to school how weird would that be to go oh, back and really film, oh, a, that's really film a movie in your old high school
0: that's kind of cool actually yeah I, th- I
1: feel like you'd go in there and you're like shoulders yeah, i went... own this place yeah you'd you'd <laughs> you'd strut a little bit but whatever let's Scoot ahead there at the beach. It's Bill and his girlfriend, whose name is Shauna. Oh, yeah. Pause on Shauna for a moment. She is played by Heidi Kozak, and she is most memorable for the most amazing film possibly ever, Slumber Party Massacre <laughs> 2.
0: Uh, well, it is an incredible film, but I would say her scenes in particular are very memorable in that film, and she is just... As 80s as it gets. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I love that she's in this film, too. She's in quite a few really cool films.
1: She's in Friday the 13th, 7.
0: Yeah, she's just really understated. She just made her rounds through the horror movies. Mm -hmm. And, man, she is fun. And she brings it in this movie. She is full 80s in this movie. I love it.
1: Denim dress. White boots.
0: Oh, I know. There you go. That outfit alone. worth its weight in gold.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So Bill and and Shauna are at the beach. She wants him to get invited uh, to a party. He's not especially into it, but he goes to try and get himself invited into a party. Doesn't happen for him. But Blanchard, remember Blanchard, who was kicked out of his sister's closet. Mm -hmm. He approaches... And makes Bill listen to the creepiest tape ever because Blanchard has bugged his sister's earrings. That's
0: why he was in the mm-hmm. in the bathroom. And the tape is very bizarre because it is these audio clips of something that um a brother would never want to hear.
1: Ugh. No. Yeah, these incestual moments are so unsettling because it's in human nature to recoil against it. So I think Yuzna plays against that so well because you're instantly like, nope, 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 because you just imagine yourself in that situation and you're so uncomfortable.
0: Well, and it really also adds to the whole narrative of that society, of high-class society being creepy and weird and secretive. Yep that, well, they're probably just all incestual anyway, you know, literally. <laughs> yeah, and so he hears this tape and he freaks out and he takes the tape to his psychiatrist and is like, you got to hear this. And the psychiatrist hears it and when he plays it back for Billy, it is not the same tape. And that's where we start to get an indication. Yeah. That clearly, we already had our suspicions, but that psychiatrist is... In on it, too.
1: Yes. Oh, I did want to say, let's go back to the beach for just a second. Oh, yeah, for sure. There are two teen or, like, preteen boys who play a prank on Shauna where Uh they, like, squirt her with suntan lotion. Yeah, that's pretty funny. One of those is Yuzena's kid. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Nice. Nice cameo. (laughs)
1: Side note. So after the psychiatrist or therapist appointment... Bill tries to go back and get an original copy of the tape from Blanchard because he knows the tape has been doctored. He calls Blanchard and is like, meet me at some random corner. Yeah. (laughs) Why? Like, why not just go to... Okay. Anyway, he meets at a corner to get another copy of this tape because he really wants to hear this weird, like, incestual coming out party sex tape. Blanchard comes, Bill's on his way and he comes in Blanchard's van is upside down on a on a like flat road. yeah,
0: it's pretty destructive blood everywhere. yeah <laughs> and he's funny.
1: clearly like deceased.
0: Yes, he's well he's being taken away on a stretcher mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, we'll get back to that. and then Bill. Immediately after this, Bill's like paranoia is at the peak, and then he gets an invite into that guy, Ted's party, that he had been trying to get into. And he goes to Ted's party. Okay. He makes some trouble.
0: He's a troublemaker. He's got the hair that says troublemaker.
1: Yeah. So he you know? brings he brings his friend Milo because Shauna had a fit, she's not coming. He brings his friend Milo. Milo is wearing a shirt that actually belonged to Yuzna that says, Eat the Rich.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I didn't cool. notice that,
1: but apparently. Was it so- a
0: Motorhead shirt or just a random shirt that said, Eat the Rich? Dude, I don't know. Okay, well, I'm just asking.
1: Okay, so they go. Bill makes trouble, but he leaves with the babe, Clarissa.
0: <laughs> yeah, Clarissa's a total babe.
1: She's a babe. And- She's like
0: Uber Babe, by the way. She, you know who she was dating at the time? Who? Sylvester Stallone.
1: Oh. Uh, she was
0: like a penthouse chick. Okay. Did you recognize her? No. I recognized her. I mean, I've seen the movie, but I always like, hey, I know this face somewhere. And uh-huh. of course, to our listeners, it's going to come as no surprise. She is the uh, sacrificial babe in, in House 2. Yep. If it's in House 2 i know about it
1: yeah and she's she's gone on to have a an okay career uh she's played by devon de vasquez
0: what a like model name right yeah high fashion
1: it's weird i have such an aversion to sylvester stallone and it's totally unfair i'm sorry sylvester
0: i did until i heard the story about him getting rocky made and then like like yeah dude stick to your guns yeah
1: that see is your pretty vision cool. through that is cool okay so he ends up bill ends up going home with clarissa and they have a sex scene apparently bill was supposed to be full nude and kind of got out of that and then there's this after they've like a postcoital moment <laughs> where he looks up at Clarissa and her body is contorted. What that actually is, is two women yeah. like tangled in the bedding. But it looks like her body is almost backwards, hearkening back to his sister in the bathroom.
0: Yeah, it's really funny. I like it. it yeah. It's, it's a fun moment. It kind of reminds me of uh, the waiting room chicken Beetlejuice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then we meet Clarissa's mom and here's a major plot problem that i have or maybe i don't what clarissa's mom in general
0: oh yeah that character is problematic i would say
1: there is absolutely no reason for this character but it is a noteworthy character if you haven't seen it you'll know or if you have seen it you'll know if you haven't seen it you will know once you have seen it we spot Clarissa's mom first on the beach. She's a large woman, but she's also weird and vacant and creepy and wants to eat hair.
0: Yes. So that's th- it. I came across an interview with Brian Usna where he discussed this character. Do you
1: have an answer?
0: He thought that it would be, they had this idea that it would be like a dark humor, almost like a John Waters type character that they could throw yeah. in there. And he fully admitted that this is one of the areas as a debut film where it was just a misstep, that it didn't sit well, Mm -hmm. and it it didn't come across the way that he had envisioned, and that although the character had a lot of potential and had it been done right, it would have been this kind of quirky, dark humor character Mm -hmm. that that is through that storyline, but that it just didn't it wasn't conveyed properly and mm-hmm. that that just is a product of not quite having a grasp on everything. Fair I enough. I honestly really respect that he owns that right away and just says, "Hey, like it was my first film, we were tackling a lot and this trying is just different things. one of those areas that didn't quite stick as well as it could okay. but it does explain it because it is it, it's sticks out pretty hard in this film
1: yeah it really does she's a strange character and i wondered if she was supposed to be a, like a red herring or something but she's really not successful in that way but it's a memorable character for <laughs> yeah, sure for sure yeah quite memorable <laughs> i mean what else can you say so after all of this happens, Bill is... He's riled himself up. He's decided he's going to move out. He doesn't trust his family. He doesn't trust what's happening. He knows something fishy is going on. So he says, I'm moving out. And then he goes to Blanchard's funeral where he... I don't i don't remember. Somebody touches Blanchard's cheek in the coffin and it, like, crumbles. Yeah. And it's strange. It's a little... It's a little weird, I guess. I, it doesn't quite make sense to me either. It's like a, a little problematic because is it that the society is so wealthy that they can make like strange crumbly fake bodies? I don't really understand what that's all about, but they've made a decoy body.
0: Yeah, well, we find that out soon.
1: Bill ends up confronting his parents again. So he had the angry, I'm moving out. Now he's back for another confrontation? Yeah. I guess.
0: Well, this time he's got a pretty witty one-liner where yes. he looks at his dad and says this. I won't tolerate this language from you, young man. Fuck you, butthead. I love it. I don't know why the word butthead makes me laugh so hard. but I know. It's a really underused word in our society.
1: Actually, in our household, our our daughters call each other butthead, and I have to try every time to keep a straight face and be like, that's too mean, we don't say yeah, that. Yeah, don't say
0: that, although that was really funny.
1: I know, it's so hard as a parent not to laugh. <sighs> anyway, after calling his dad a butthead, obviously he must be hospitalized. So yeah, he's, I
0: would hospitalize him.
1: He's captured and taken to a hospital. Thankfully, his best friend forever, Milo, kind of, he's outside, so he sees some of what's happening, and he follows. He goes to the hospital to collect Bill and is told that Bill has died. Yeah. This is important because apparently everybody's dying and just, that's fine, go away. It's yeah, like it's they're
0: out. Like the money can just make it disappear. Nobody asks questions.
1: But Bill is not dead. He... Wakes up and checks himself out of the hospital and strangely acts drunk. Was that weird?
0: (laughs) I didn't catch that, no. He's
1: like in the car and like irrational for a minute. But he goes and confronts uh, Clarissa. And this is only kind of important because weirdly Clarissa's mom ends up in Milo's car.
0: I like that where he's like, hop in, we'll go get him. Also, Clarissa has the cool side ponytail. That's pretty sweet 80s stuff
1: yeah i tried it a few times in the 80s although i was a, a very little girl it never worked for me i, I mean, would
0: think that uh what's her name jesse spano from saves by the bell i bet she could pull that off pretty well
1: i don't know she'd be so excited about it and now bill has to go confront his parents again because third time's a charm <laughs> he's
0: he's a confrontational dude
1: He finds himself at a fancy society party. (laughs) And he's captured again. Yep. He just simply won't learn. And then this is like where everything comes unhinged. And I feel like this is the crux of the movie where it started from here and they built out.
0: Yeah. This is insane.
1: So we have lots of really creepy party society scenes and they eventually bring in blanchard who was supposed to be dead remember in the upside down uh van attack (laughs) i don't know what that was but he comes in and they lay him out in his shorts and i don't i don't really have the words to describe what's happening it's very much dalian there is melting of bodies into bodies so all of these rich people melt themselves into blanchard's body
0: well i can i can put it into words it's called the shunting
1: okay i have actually a lot of problem with this because a shunt is what you do to relieve really pl- Pressure. So, like, if your brain is swelling, you'll poke a hole in somebody's brain to relieve the pressure. I don't quite understand the, the shunting, but okay.
0: Well, this whole scene, the shunting scene, is pretty interesting. This is where the film amps up, and this is what makes this film iconic. This is where we're going to spend some time now, because we've gotten to the point of why you're listening to this episode if you've seen it, because mm-hmm. society is known for one thing... And one thing alone, the shunting scene, (sighs) which has gone down in infamy. Before we even get into the rest of it, I think this is a great opportunity to have this week's fun fact. Yes! So, some people will know this already, especially if you've seen the film. But I think it's important for people who maybe don't know a lot about the film To get a sense of what inspired this. We've already alluded to the surrealism and everything else. But this was actually this whole body melt scene. Mm -hmm. Where they're all morphing into each other and stretching out. Was based on two Dali paintings in particular. The first painting. And I would ask you to look these up. Because you'll look at them and go, oh yeah, that's a scene out of society. First painting was... Soft construction with boiled beans, a.k.a. premonition of civil war, Mm -hmm. which is going to be these elongated, stretched out arms on crutches and stuff like that. And then the other one is the great masturbator, which is just this weird sponge-like body being stretched around. And so it is really cool. And that is what these visuals were based on. Now, knowing that, we have intentionally held off on the other key component of the success of this movie which is the special effects and i didn't want to put him up front and top load it because it would have been a lot of information and i thought we would bring it in now is this film would not have been as successful or as iconic with just brian yuzna now i like brian good job bud but half the credit has to go to the effects The story there is that as Brian was looking for financiers, he had these Japanese financiers that had put him in touch with the legendary special effects guy, Screaming Mad George. Now, horror fans will know that name because he had made a name for himself with Predator. Then he went on to work on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Part 4. He worked on Poltergeist Part 2, Big Trouble in Little China. So he had done his time. He was top tier really eccentric and guess what he loved he met up with brian Yuzna, and they shared a common interest in surrealism and not yeah. only surrealism in particular salvador Dali. so both of these guys took the script that was given to him about a blood oath and said what if we scratch the blood oath and make it into this totally bizarre twisted surrealist nightmare with body melting and body horror?" And Screaming Mad George said that this was like a blast to work on because he could sketch up anything and show Brian and they were like, yes, let's just go with it. And so it was this bizarre, completely unobstructed. Nobody was telling him what to do or how to do it. All anything went. And Brian had said, you know, this was his first film. So he was naive to this notion of like, I'll just make the film that I want to make. And they went All in, like all in. Now, the one thing to know is that they, based on Brian's work with Reanimator, he didn't want to get a strong rating and have that affect like his chances of getting seen or whatever. So they intentionally got away from a lot of blood so it wouldn't be as gory. That's why there's so much slime and stuff like that. But what ended up happening is it was so bizarre and twisted and gross that they still had four minutes of this final scene Cut out of the final take because it was just so over the top.
1: Yeah, I actually read that they avoided any blood because they were worried about the ratings in the Motion Picture Association of America.
0: Yeah, uh, and they just didn't want it to look that gory. They wanted it to be more surrealist and nightmare. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I work in sort of a surrealist vein myself. I certainly appreciated that about this film. Also, uh, an important thing that I would like to note: I hope in my life I earn a nickname as cool as Screaming Mad George.
0: That is a really awesome name. Oh my
1: gosh! Like, what about Whispering Crazy Mariah? <laughs> oh
0: my gosh! Uh, that's different than Lord of the Dogs. I'll say that.
1: Oh yeah, I forgot about that. You know, in high school, I I went back after graduating to visit my brother. And I was walking through the halls and somebody was going, oh, there's that crazy girl. There's that weird crazy girl. And I looked behind me to see who they were talking about. And I realized they were talking about me. (laughs) It's one of my proudest
0: moments. (laughs) Oh, Well, speaking of crazy. Okay,
1: back to this.
0: Screaming mad, George. So his talents are on full display at the end of this film. Oh, yeah. And it is a sight to be seen. Now, to our listeners... We guide you along every week to fun films. This is a blast of a film. Mm-hmm. However, this may be a bit much for some viewers. If you're like not into really, really bizarre dark horror, this end scene is weird. I realize we're just totally jaded to this. So mm-hmm. we're watching it like, hey, this is awesome. I Jeez, love it. Check that out. He just stuck his fist through that guy's something and it came out here and... It is so incredibly bizarre. And I think if you're not used to this style of filmmaking, um, be prepared.
1: I love it, though, because it's so interesting because they challenge these ideas of ownership and boundaries. Like, it's fabulous. It's so weird because they just literally suck the life from this guy. And I actually read that Yuzna had to ask the actor whose name was Tim Bartell to like scale it back because it was so intense. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You took this a little too far. Just dial it down.
0: Well, and this was crazy. Uh, Billy, the main actor, said that this took like 17 hours to shoot or something. They all did it. And that everybody but him was having a blast on set. Like they were all in. And he said everybody was joining in. It was like, lighting guys, like whatever, catering or something. Like they would all just jump in and and they were getting covered in slime and goo and just having a blast all morphing into this one gross blob. Yeah. And that he was the only one that was really not having fun. He didn't want to be covered in slime and all that. Uh And he said it's really interesting because at the end of the day, his reaction to not being not having as much fun as everybody else adds to his character being out of place, that he's the only one in the film that wouldn't have wanted to participate. Yeah. I just think it's a happy accident, honestly.
1: Yeah. And so he's trying to get free. He knows he's next up after they finish doing whatever whatever they're doing to Blanchard. And Clarissa has decided now that he was so good that one time they humped uh, that she's in love and she wants to set him free. <laughs> and so she does... And he takes off running. His therapist follows. His hand turns in, or his head turns into a hand.
0: Yeah, that's pretty awesome.
1: (laughs) Awesome. He goes to his parents' bedroom because they weren't, like, partaking in the Blanchard feast. They're up there. His mom's got, like, crazy buff arms that she's using as hands and, like, walk, or using as feet and walking. And then the sister is, like, I don't. Like they
0: a, morph into each other at like, some point. It is really pretty awesome. Is,
1: I don't know what's happening. They're Yeah, it's like double bodies. It's very strange. And then his dad comes up. And guess what he is?
0: <laughs> his dad, let's say he backs up. He <laughs> scoots backwards. Scoots. And uh, if you haven't seen this, here it is. He. We see his backside... His butt. And his butt, and where his his rectum would be is a face. And he says this. Uh,
1: uh, well, son, I
0: guess you're right. I am a butthead. <laughs> Dude, you don't like society. I don't know what's wrong with you. This film is so fun.
1: I mean, I don't like society, but this movie's
0: great. Oh, I like this movie. Yeah, I don't like society in general, but... This is what we get. I mean this film is iconic for so many reasons, but how could you not laugh every oh time you see that scene?
1: So Bill extricates himself from this crazy yeah. situation. <laughs> he heads back downstairs and cuz basically Bill's just a bro jock who found himself into a found his way into a weird situation and he does what any bro jock would do. He singles out a person. It's Ted Ferguson. To a fight, <laughs> things are going very poorly for Bill, actually, until he punches, <laughs> punches through Ted <laughs> out of, I think through his butthole, I'm not sure, <laughs> and then out of his mouth and pulls him inside out. Everybody in society is appalled because that's preposterous.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's too far.
1: Yep. And then Bill, Milo, the BFF, and Clarissa leave. I have no idea what happened to the hair-eating mother. She's gone.
0: What a fun ending. I mean, you know what? I love when a movie just goes all in by the end. Because I hate when you invest in an hour, an hour and ten minutes, and you know you're going into that final act. And then it just loses all its steam and it falls apart. Yeah, peters out. I love when movies are like, nope, if you've stayed with us this long, mm-hmm. we're rewarding you.
1: We're giving it to <laughs> we're
0: you. We're giving it to you. And that's what society does. This. What an interesting film. Can you imagine how this was received? Let's talk about that.
1: How was this received?
0: <laughs> okay, well... This got inflated a little to a $2 million budget. Still not a lot when you think about what they accomplished. Yeah. Pretty impressive, honestly. They just
1: saved all their money for that weird ending.
0: Yeah. And they used it very wisely. Mm -hmm. So this premiered overseas first. I think in maybe England or something like that at first. But it ultimately went to Cannes and it premiered there uh, May 13th, 1989 Mixed reviews. Some people were like, whoa. Other people thought it was really offensive and disgusting.
1: That was the rich people. (laughs)
0: Right. Overall, well, we'll get to that. Overall, pretty well received. But then it did not make its way to U.S. and get an actual theatrical release for years. It didn't get a release until June 11th, 1992. Weird. Is when it finally came out. And the U.S. release... Did not go over well at all.
1: No. 1992 is like when Dracula was coming out.
0: Well, and nobody at that time in America wanted to be confronted with class problems. with With these issues that there were these underlying problems with our society in America because how dare they. And it flopped hard here. Like the critics did not appreciate it. Some people said, oh, this is this overblown, pretentious art house film. Other people said...
1: What is wrong with overblown and pretentious? Exactly.
0: They're breaking new ground and having fun.
1: Blow it over. Be super pretentious.
0: Needless to say, America was not prepared for this one. (laughs) However, in Europe, where class was always at the forefront of discussion, it went over fantastic. Especially in England. They really enjoyed Mm -hmm. it. And so it went... Really well over there. And then in the U.S. coming back here, it got released on VHS. That's our copy that we have. It's a very cool, cool cover. Mm -hmm. That's where it found its legs here is home video. Like so many movies we discussed, it became a cult classic.
1: You see that cool cover in a, you know, movie rental store and you got to check it out.
0: And this is definitely a word of mouth movie. You rent it, you see the ending and you tell your friends. Like we're Whoa. telling you right yeah. now. This is
1: our words to your, your ear holes. <laughs> <laughs> we're melting together into one.
0: That's right. You're part of the Laser Graves Shunt Society. <laughs> Let's get a patch that says Laser Graves Shunt Society. Gross. <laughs> okay, well, needless to say, it went on to become a cult classic. And For sure. And Brian Usna, like he had planned, then went on to direct Bride of Reanimator
1: Great mm-hmm. film.
0: Good job, bro. And he did a bunch of other awesome films. He did Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 4. He did <sighs> Return yep. of the Living Dead Part 3, which I love. Yeah. And then he did The Dentist, 1 and 2. So Aww. he's gone on to do a ton of stuff. He's doing cool. great, good stuff. He went on to keep producing. and <sighs> Way to go. Yeah, I, just a great story of this guy who had no clue how to make a film and found himself just really breaking new ground especially by the end of the 80s when you think you'd seen it all and nope then along came society well (laughs) can't forget that one
1: you know it's like they tell artists say yes and figure it out
0: that's right figure it out later that is that's what we have for you this week we really both enjoyed it loved it like i said uh, if you're really into out there 80s horror this is a must watch If you're not... um, What are you doing? Yeah, you really need to question your life.
1: Rethink yourself. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, But if you like what you heard, as you know, the best thing you can do is tell your friends what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Share. Thank you to everybody who shares our posts on Instagram. That's really awesome of you. We have got a notice that we broke 10,000 downloads. That's awesome. I mean, we've been busting it. So... That means a lot to us. We're this tiny little podcast. We don't have a huge listener base, but we are doing our best to bring this to you week to week. Rate, review, subscribe us anywhere you get uh, your podcast. That really does help. It helps
1: so much. The
0: other thing you can do is we've done Patreon now. So we are bringing all these bonus episodes to you every month. The next one is about to come out. You got another rapid fire newscast from Mariah (laughs) coming at you. Remember when you join Patreon, you also unlock all the back ones that we've already done. So Mm -hmm. there's We're putting in
1: a lot of work.
0: Yeah, if you think this podcast has any value to you financially, then you know, show us, let us know. And if not, just thanks for supporting us. If you want Mm -hmm. to follow us on Instagram, we're at Lasergraves. If you want to follow our personal sites, I'm at Death at 33 RPM.
1: I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer.
0: And as always, please go listen to our fellow podcasters, Bad Taste Video, Neon Brainiacs, Reconcinimation. I mean, we're going to forget everybody because there's just so many out we there. We post
1: them on our But on we our will post Instagram. them all.
0: Super Tat. All those guys. Get out there and, and follow them. And until next week, I uh, hope you're having a good holiday season. We will see you soon.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: Bye.